Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. This is our news roundup episode for the week in which we talk in a bit more depth about some of the uh, things that were in the news this week, some of the bigger news. Uh, And today specifically we're going to talk about uh, Nest's new product announcement, uh, including its uh, first sort of home security foray. Secondly, we're going to talk about reviews for the various new Apple products, uh, the reviews that came out this week for products that were announced last week that we discussed in depth in last week's Question of the Week episode. And I'd probably have a little conversation about demand for the iPhone 8 line uh, in the context of that as well. And then thirdly, talk about Google's uh, deal, investment deal, I think is the way they've formally described it, uh, of uh, in, into HTC, which is basically uh, an acquihire in some ways of about 2,000 employees, as well as a, a license for certain patents and intellectual property rights. So those are the three news items that we'll talk about today, kicking off with uh, the Nest product announcement. Uh, I'd originally hoped to be uh, at this Nest product announcement in person in San Francisco, but with my travels last week and various other things that I had commitments to do this week closer to home, uh, I decided to watch it remotely in the end. And it was it was interesting. It was certainly by far Nest's biggest product announcement ever. Um, and in the context of what's already been quite a big year for Nest with a lot of announcements, they basically refreshed or added to their entire product line during the course of this year after several years of really not doing much. And, um, you know, there's little incremental upgrades here and there. They kind of rebranded the drop cam stuff to Nest Cam and so on. But this was a, a, a much bigger set of announcements. So, Aaron, what was your take on these various announcements that Nest made? Um, I thought it was I thought it was great stuff. I, I mean, you know, I, it, actually one of the very first thoughts that came to mind was the take that you've had for a while now that... Uh, one of the more competitive ways to get smart, more smart homes online is actually through a subscription type service, like the kind of thing that Vivint does or, or other big companies like that. And this is clearly going at it the other direction, essentially making it like super easy home install, you know, do your own thing line of smart home products. Um, and I, I think there's room for both in the market. And I think, uh, I think this stuff is interesting. I, my second thought when I saw this stuff was, man, it feels like this should have been out three years ago. <laughs> so, right. I mean, Ness has had such a tumultuous internal set of politics um, since the Google acquisition. <clears throat> uh, well, I guess now technically Alphabet. It, it just it, it feels like, man, that all this stuff should have been happening years ago, and it's not clear why until now, except for the politics stuff. And so, so. I don't know, I guess it's good to finally see it happening. Maybe that's too strong of a word, finally. But, um, you know, it, it had such a narrow product line for so long. This feels more like what Nest was kind of not necessarily intended to be, but should have been at least. Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, it's um, it's a very logical extension. I mean, they, they got, they've, they're got they doing a doorbell now, which they haven't done before. But the big announcement was really the home security service, which is called Nest Secure sorry, service, I say service, but it's really uh, just a set of hardware. And that's kind of what, what's different about this relative to most of what's in the market here today. Um, but yeah, it, it's a very logical extension in that, in that sense. And, and in some way surprising, they haven't done this before now. And you do wonder whether Tony Fidel was perhaps, um, who, you know, the, the former CEO who left a little while back, you know, during his tenure there, there really wasn't much public shipping of new products. And you kind of wonder if there was a little... Steve Jobs like sort of over focus on perfectionism and therefore not being able to actually ship anything and and uh, you know if with him going out the door the company was able to finally sort of move on and 
uh, with new leadership kind of make a bit more rapid progress. Or maybe it was just one of those things where the gestation period for all these products was three years and just happened. Tony Fidel left after two and now here it all is. You know, it's possible. But um, as I say, logical extensions. But, you, you know, you raised the point, which was one of my big reactions to the announcement this week, which was um, that this is it expands product categories and that's been expanding into new markets with its existing product categories and so there's new addressable markets here and that therefore expands the opportunity for nest but nest is still limiting its market to people who are willing to pay up front buy off the shelf and in many cases self-install and in all cases self-manage after the fact right and that's a big chunk of what the smart home market is today but it means that you're ignoring the 90 something percent of the market that was never going to do those things that doesn't want to spend hundreds of dollars up front on smart home gear that doesn't want to uh, have to mess with wiring on the thermostat uh, that doesn't want to have to troubleshoot when their thermostat for some reason won't connect to the wi-fi um, or the home security system won't talk to the lighting or whatever it might be. Uh, and so they really sold that as a selling point, kind of self-install, you don't have to wait around for a technician for hours, you don't have to take the day off work and so on and so forth. But for a lot of people, they'd rather do that, frankly, than have to install it themselves. And it does feel like Nest is still limiting itself and its addressable market by focusing entirely on that self-install model. And it's a bit of a surprise to me because Marwan Fawaz, the new CEO, when he came in, his history was at companies that have worked with carriers on products that end up being part of subscriptions. And, and Nest does have some partnerships. They are part of some of those third-party services that do incorporate a variety of different smart home gear. Uh, but Nest itself is still not putting its brand on any of that stuff. They basically refer you to local installers if that's what you need, but that's about as far as they go. And they don't really make any guarantees around any of that. So it still feels like there's a missed opportunity there, even though I, I think you know the product set is now much more comprehensive than it's ever been. It's, it's uh, more compelling in many ways than it has been. And there's some really good and innovative stuff in there. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the other interesting thing that's happening here is that Nest is still fighting the good fight over the ecosystem of, of the smart home market. Um, <clears throat> HomeKit has gained a lot of ground in the last year or two in the sense that there are more and more products compatible with HomeKit and products that used to... Um, not originally start with HomeKit support now have it, and this is all all the Nest stuff is very conspicuously not compliant with HomeKit, right. and and I mean with the Nest app being the central app in which you manage all your Nest products that you might have installed in your house, they're clearly still trying to fight over they're still trying to fight over the ecosystem of smart homes, and uh, <clears throat> it's not clear that this is a it's not clear where the battle is going to go, but I think it's it's obvious that they're not going to win by doing it sort of exclusively to themselves. I mean, there are door locks, there are um, <clears throat> any number of other, um, you know, light switches. There are all kinds of things that aren't yet part of the Nest ecosystem, and maybe they're still working on that stuff and moving that direction and eventually want to have a a, 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 a totally complete set of products for anything you want to do with a smart home. But I mean, they're not going to make a garage door opener, and uh, and and granted, right now Nest is sort of telling you know Chamberlain with their garage doors, hey, you can plug into our Nest ecosystem. But it does seem like they're still trying to own this rather than just be sort of compatible with whatever anybody might want to use to manage their smart home. And I, I don't know. I think they're. I think I, I don't think that's a winnable battle over time. It's a funny. It almost feels like Nest is the Apple of the 80s and 90s in this scenario. 
um, when in reality, you know, the, the sort of broader approach can work with any device, no matter what ecosystem manager you're using. It seems like that has to win in the, in the long run. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I think the battle of the ecosystems in the smart home is definitely part of the overall picture, and there's still a massive amount of fragmentation there. And one of the fascinating things about Nest is there's no hub to it. It all works with Nest. So it's other yeah. stuff that can tap into Nest, but there is no sort of central control through Nest. If you buy works with Nest stuff, you still have to kind of control it separately. They can talk to each other, but you don't necessarily control it through the Nest app in the same way that you do Nest's own gear. And so it's yeah. an interesting approach, a very loose approach to an ecosystem, even more so than HomeKit, which is already, you know, because there's no first-party hardware in HomeKit. Uh, it's already a fairly loose ecosystem, but the works with Nest program seems even more so. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's some good innovations there. I think, you know, they've, they've tried to make the home security stuff a lot more palatable to have as part of your home. So it's not this big, ugly box on the wall and all the rest of it. And with some of the cameras, they've made some changes to deal with some of the complaints in the past in terms of how easy it was to disable the external cameras because you just had to kind of cut the cable, basically, um, and various other issues like that. So they've definitely made some improvements, you know, in home security trying to make the sensors better looking and smaller and smarter and so on. But the reality is, you know, they're selling this sort of vision of, oh, it's a single sensor, whether it's a room detect you know, motion detection sensor or whether it's a window or door sensor, that's actually the same sensor as if that's a good thing. But the reality is many people will need lots of those sensors for windows and doors. And if they're only, if they're only managing that one task of is the door open or closed, they can be really small and cheap and unobtrusive. But if they also have to be the motion detection sensor, then suddenly they're much bigger and more expensive than they need to be. And so there's some pros and cons to all of this, I think. And, and it's very much driven. It was you know, interesting to watch the announcement because there was a lot of echoes of the stuff that Apple talks about, taking existing categories, making them easier to use, making them beautiful, well-designed, and all the rest of it. But it does feel with some of the smart home stuff, like actually what you want is just a tiny little thing that sits very, very unobtrusively on your windows and doors and costs $5 or $10 or whatever. Yeah. that connects to the rest of the system. You don't need this big fancy motion detector on every single door and window. You know, and if we were to really cover all the doors and windows on our ground floor, you know, we'd have to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars through Nest system because they'd all be $59 each or whatever they are uh, on top of the sort of $500 it costs to buy the basic system and the two sensors. So there's a lot of stuff there that I think still needs work in terms of the sort of implementation and so on, but it's a good start. Yeah, this is the fundamental problem with the entire smart home market, though, is that all these components, when you add them up across all the parts of your home that you want to make smart, is is prohibitively expensive for the vast majority of people. And so as long as that's true, smart, this is what makes the smart home market feel so slow, is that prices need to come down before there's really wide adoption. Right. No, absolutely. That, that and I think the service model would make a big difference to mainstreaming some of this stuff as we've talked about before yeah well let's let's move on to our second news topic which is apple reviews and apple seems to have staged things very carefully such that iphone reviews arrived on tuesday uh, apple watch series 3 reviews arrived on wednesday and then apple tv 4k reviews arrived on thursday so each of those middle three days of the week this week there were uh, reviews for one of those products starting obviously with the iphone which is sort of the headline product moving on to the watch which is sort of big new product category for Apple, and then thirdly, the Apple TV, which is sort of fairly marginal still in the grand scheme of things. And it was an interesting set of reviews that came out, and each of those things was different. We should probably talk about each of them separately, but uh, Aaron, any kind of overall themes that you detected from all of this? Uh, from overall themes for all three products, um, people are still really happy with fit and finish, the way Apple does things. 
across all three of these products, the product is a is the is a best in class device with certain qualifications. <laughs> so there's a, like there's always something that it maybe isn't quite what people wanted, but overall they say it's one of the best devices in its category that you can get out there. Um, and uh, I, I don't know that was that was the overall theme of all three products with all the reviews mm-hmm. I've been reading. But yeah, as I mentioned, very different between them as well. Yeah, so with the iPhone 8 in particular, for example, um, you know, every review had to talk about the iPhone 10 because there's no right. way to review the iPhone 8 without talking about the 10 that's looming. And uh, and yet every single review said, but the iPhone 8 is really good. If it wasn't for the iPhone 10 hanging out there, we would be telling you this is a great upgrade. You know, this is a worthy upgrade. This is, you know, Apple keeping the march of innovation going. Um and, uh, and and that's true. And in fact, I think those reviews reflect something that's going to happen, which is I think iPhone 8 sales are going to be a slow burn, but I still think they're going to sell a cra- I think Apple's still going to sell a crazy number of iPhone 8s, whether it's the 8 or the 8 Plus. And I say that because a lot of people are still kind of sitting on the iPhone 10 thing trying to decide, but a whole bunch of the stuff that makes the iPhone 10 impressive is in the 8 already. It has the, a- the A11 Bionic chip. Um, the Plus has really great cameras. Um, they're HDR compatible, even if you know one is an LCD with the eight, and the other is an OLED with the ten. Um, uh, both support wireless charging. Um, you know, these are all like the day-to-day features that matter to people. <clears throat> a bunch of these are already packed into the iPhone eight line, and I think a lot of people are going to be kind of sitting on this. This is what's happened with me. I'm I'm trying to decide between an eight and a ten. And uh, and my wife is due for an upgrade too, and I'm pretty sure she's going to end up either with an eight or an eight plus, only because those extra features that come with the ten she doesn't really care about. But you know, being able to take great pictures and all these other things, um, uh, the iPhone eight's a great phone for that. And so, mm-hmm. so I think that's I think what's going to happen is you're going to see something more of a slow burn with sales, but yet they're still going to sell a crazy number of them. Yeah, no, absolutely, I, and I think. I don't know, the reviews The reviews were kind of a, a mixed bag as they always are, different people emphasizing different things and so on. There was a lot of don't bother upgrading if you have a 7, a 7 basically. Yeah, and but that's like, every year. Well, yeah, that's every year we hear this and it's like every year we have to say most people are not upgrading every year. What, the real question is if you have what most people have today, which is a 6S or a 6 or even a 5S, should you upgrade? And then the answer is a lot more clear. But for some reason, there's so many reviews still focus on should yeah. you upgrade from last year's phone, which is frankly right. not the question really most people are asking. If you're the kind of person who upgrades every year, you're going to do it regardless. And it's just a question of whether you get the 8 or the 10 this year. And in the vast majority of cases, somebody upgrades every year is going to get the 10 because suggests they're sort of fairly obsessive about having the, the next best thing every year. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there was a lot of sort of ho-hum another incremental upgrade type stuff but it's like well yeah on an annual basis that's kind of what you get but you know it's a really good upgrade if you're coming from a two or three year old device and um you know i think that theme as you said was kind of fairly consistent that these are very good devices really no quibbles with the performance or anything else clearly faster than last year's version on the plus you have the sort of enhancements to portrait mode and all the rest of it and, you know, the, there is a new design, which, you know, you won't see if you're using a case, unfortunately. I mean, I, my 
um, loaner unit from Apple just arrived today for the 8 Plus. And, you know, if you put a case on it, it looks almost identical to the 7. It's only when yeah. you take the case off, you look at the back and you see the glass and everything. It's really quite uh, a good-looking device, very different-looking in that sense from the last couple of years' devices. But, um, you know, it's not dramatically different on the outside. And so I think a lot of people tend to focus on that, especially in reviews, and ignore all the stuff that's changed on the inside. And I think that's always a mistake. But it's worth talking, I think, too, about the Apple Watch reviews because those were yeah. fascinating because there were basically two that picked up on connectivity issues. I mean, the Wall Street Journal and The Verge. And then everything else, every other review didn't seem to pick up on those issues. And yet those issues for The Verge and The Wall Street Journal were really very significant. They basically appeared to be issues connecting to LTE networks. And it emerged later on both from Apple and then iMore did a great explainer of what was going on as well that it was actually a Wi-Fi issue that manifested as an LTE issue in that these devices were trying to connect to saved Wi-Fi networks that on a phone would pop up a little interstitial screen saying, do you agree to the terms or put in your name or whatever it might be, and then would log you in and you'd be able to connect to the internet. And on the watch where you can't sort of uh, enter anything to a portal or anything like that, uh, the watch just basically connected the Wi-Fi without being connected to the internet. That then stopped it from connecting to LTE, and so it appeared to be having a hard time connecting to LTE. And so, um, you know, that's a bug. It's one that I'm amazed that Apple didn't discover in its own testing, frankly. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but it's notable that so many of the other reviewers never really seem to encounter it. And so it really seems to depend, I suspect, a lot on where you use the device and what your past behavior is in terms of what types of Wi-Fi networks you've connected to in the past. And maybe people at Apple tend not to connect to these networks that have those little portals and things like that, and just generally stay on LTE when they're out and about. Maybe some of the re reviewers tend to connect more to those kinds of things, I don't know. Um, frankly, if I was gonna be using the watch without my phone, I'd be doing it out and about in my suburban neighborhood where there aren't any of those Wi-Fi networks, and I probably wouldn't encounter that issue. So I suspect a lot of it's situational as well, but sort of a rare goof from Apple to have a new product uh, with you know, a headline new feature that doesn't work properly for a lot of people for reasons that seem fairly simple to fix. I agree. That was a surprise, especially because there was a picture that surfaced of Tim Cook wearing one of these uh, Series 3 watches with the red accent on the crown um, from two years ago. Mm. <laughs> so this has been in the works, obviously, for a long time, and it's surprising that that didn't surface as a potential issue. My favorite yeah. review of the of the Series 3 Apple Watch was actually at Hot & Key, the, the watch enthusiast website. Mm, and yeah. uh, Benjamin Clymer did an awesome article and video. And you got to watch the video and read the article because there's, there's content that you don't get by just doing one or the other. <clears throat> and uh, it was a really thoughtful, thorough review. And I think sort of put into the most accurate picture I read across all the reviews, the significance of having LTE on, on a watch. Um, mm -hmm. he's, he sort of communicated in a very practical kind of day-to-day -day way that made me think, yeah, I can see the value in it. Like I can I can have a picture of how it would, how it would work and why it would matter for people. So anyway, I, I strongly recommend that review. That was one of my favorites. Plus he has, I think, based on his incredible expertise with mechanical watches, he just has a really unique take on, on the design of the Apple Watch. Um, both from yeah, he talked about materials and things, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, on. from a materials perspective, fit and finish, like all that stuff. I, it was it was really good. And so, yeah, that's I, I think that that that's the one review that you'll read where you'll read things and perspectives that you're not going to find anywhere else. 
Right. No, that was an interesting one. I thought it was interesting because the Wall Street Journal is quite critical. It's Joanna Stern that reviewed it there. I think Jeffrey Fowler contributed to the review as well. And uh, that was also a really fun review because there was a video that went with it where she tried to go kind of a whole day without using the phone, which I don't think is the point at all, frankly, for no, the Apple Watch with LTE. But it, it highlighted a bunch of different scenarios in which it could be useful, one of which was riding around in the Hudson River on a jet ski. Um, but, you know, there are times when you might be nervous to take your phone with you, but you have a watch that's strapped to your wrist, you know it's waterproof and you might want to stay in contact or at least track your activity or whatever. That seems like a really good use case for it, frankly. Um, and so that was good. I mean, I, other than these issues, which it seems Apple will fix pretty quickly in a software fix, um, it seemed that reviews were generally positive, but there was a lot of this sort of, you can't go a whole day with it, you can't. There was a right. lot of sort of criticisms that seemed wider the mark in terms of kind of how you'd actually expect to use this stuff and um, you know what it's designed for ultimately. So that was kind of funny. It was. I, I also think from the reviews, it's really clear that the Series 3 Apple Watch is actually going to lead to a bunch of AirPod sales. Because <laughs> yes. just about yeah. every reviewer <clears throat> was testing the Series 3 watch with, along with a pair of AirPods and talking about how much they love that combination. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's something I've been looking forward to trying out um, ever since I've read the reviews myself as well. And, and my watch is arriving tomorrow. So we'll oh, see cool. when I get to test that out a little bit. But uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's worth talking briefly about the Apple TV 4K reviews as well. I think there was a lot of consistency there too in terms of where the 4K HDR content's available. It's really fantastic. It's worth the upgrade if you've invested in a TV that supports those two technologies and so on. But there are some sort of shortcomings and things like... Uh, when you fall back to HD content, that doesn't always look great. There's a la baffling lack of support for uh, Dolby Atmos on the sound side, whereas there is support for the sort of Dolby standard on the HDR side um, and some other sort of quibbles here and there. But for the most part, it seems like a big upgrade, big sort of speed upgrade. The remote's a little bit better. A lot of people still complain a lot about the remote. Um, a lot of people, frankly, complain a lot about the Apple TV in general. I never quite understand why it's the device that we use for basically all our video viewing in our house. We all like it a great deal. We don't really have any complaints about it, but it still seems to be a device that a lot of people do complain about a lot. But I think one of the issues this time around is it's a premium device. It's clearly priced well above everything yeah. else out there, and yet it doesn't support all the premium features, especially from an audio perspective, that you would expect it to. Yeah, I thought Neely Patel's um, review at The Verge was really good because it yeah. took it took a kind of deep dive on on uh, video formats and issues related mm -hmm. to that. I think one of the legitimate complaints is that it doesn't support 4K YouTube videos, um, mm -hmm. which has to do with the video codec that Google uses yeah. um, and how Apple doesn't implement that. Um, on its devices at all, really. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, and that's a legitimate problem that I, I, I suspect will get worked out or fixed at some point. Um, but uh, but in general, I, yeah, I saw all the same stuff you did in the reviews. And, and mm -hmm. I agree. I think the angst over this just comes over the price, which is a funny thing to me right. because people look, I think people are considering the difference in price on a percentage basis rather than mm -hmm. on an absolute basis. <laughs> I mean, it, this is... In, in absolute dollar terms, this is not that much more expensive of a device. Mm. It's double or more than double if you're thinking right. on a percentage basis. But it's a $100 difference. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and when you think about other products where you might be paying for a premium, you're going to pay more than $100 for whatever the premium right. version right. is. And that's, I don't know, but that's a well-documented cognitive bias that mm. people have right there. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No, and it's worth noting that Apple is now basically the only company in that smart TV box market that's selling devices 
at a profit. Um, You know, Roku's recent IPO illustrated the fact that their big business model going forward is about revenue share and advertising on subscriptions and stuff like that. And so they basically have the incentive to sell the boxes as cheaply as possible to build their audience as quickly as possible. And they're very honest in the IPO about the fact that they don't actually aim to make money on their hardware. Amazon's famous for sort of selling hardware at cost or slightly below because it benefits the prime ecosystem and e-commerce. Google famously monetizes through advertising and so on and really only sells the Chromecast, which isn't a box as such, it's just a dongle. So different kind of market again. But, you know, Apple's really the only company that says, hey, we think the hardware has value in and of itself. We're going to make premium hardware with premium user experience. And yes, we're going to make a margin on that because that's kind of our business model. And so they're competing on a very unlevel playing field. And it's their choice, obviously, to do that. But um, that sort of drives those pricing decisions that, you know, and that tends to just get glossed over in this stuff that with Apple, at least, you know, that you're paying for the hardware because that's where Apple makes its money rather than getting cheap hardware because you're being monetized in other ways that often involve collecting data about you and then collecting it for advertising and so on. Yeah, but it's not clear yet in the TV space that the alternative revenue models other than just selling a device for profit are actually going to be sustainable in the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we don't know yet if if uh, Roku can stay in business doing what they're doing. And right. Google is on its, what, now sixth iteration of how it's approaching television. Yeah. And uh, who knows how long the Chromecast is going to last the way it's been lasting. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's there's still a ton of uncertainty there. And I think to the extent Apple can sell enough of these that it's worth its time, it's mm-hmm. smart to be selling them at a profit. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and I think it's very consistent with their strategy in other markets where it's not about market share. It's about That's right. doing a really good job for the people that are willing to pay a premium for a premium experience. All right. Well, let's move on to the third and final news topic this week, which is Google's quasi-acquisition of parts of HTC. Uh, this was uh, f- the context here, I guess, is a few weeks back. HTC was said to be exploring strategic options for different parts of its business. I said at the time Google would be a really interesting acquirer. Uh, and shortly after the first reports came out, reports started to come out about Google kind of sniffing around. And then uh, sort of early this week, HTC said it was going to suspend trading of its shares ahead of a big announcement. And various reporters went and dug into it and discovered that Google was about to buy some part of the smartphone business. And in the end, none of this has actually been described as an acquisition by either of the parties. It's been described as an investment deal, I think, officially in the press release. And that's notable. This isn't technically an acquisition. Uh, Fascinating to me that Google didn't put out a press release on its investor relations blog or any kind of SEC filing, even though the value of the deal is over a billion dollars. It's not material, I guess, if you're a company that's worth hundreds of billions of dollars. (laughs) Um, But uh, but at any rate, the the detail is that Google is uh, taking about 2,000 HTC employees that work on research and design around smartphones, many of whom had worked on Pixel devices on Google's behalf while at HTC previously, uh, bringing those over to be part of Google's hardware division. Uh, It's about half of HTC's research and design group for smartphones, so that's about 4,000 strong uh, before the 2,000 leave to go to Google, and about a fifth of the overall workforce, as I understand it, at HTC as well. So uh, basically that chunk of employees, and then there's also some kind of licensing fee in there. We've no idea, obviously, how that $1.1 billion splits between those two things. But the licensing specifically covers patents relating to work done on the Pixel, because obviously HTC did a lot of the design work on the Pixel and incorporated a lot of technologies and so on that it has patents for. Uh, Rather than Google having to kind of reinvent the wheel, once it starts building that itself, 
Uh, it now gets the rights to use those patents that are already in there for the time being uh, and possibly indefinitely so that it can keep building that stuff without having to uh, worry about being sued or anything else. So that's kind of the deal as announced. Aaron, what was your take on all of this? In my mind, like everybody else's, immediately went to the Motorola acquisition and also to the Nokia, the Microsoft Nokia acquisition and how both of those were, by and large, kind of disasters. I mean, at least financially they were. And uh, and that makes me wonder if that's it describes or that I, I should say explains the way that uh, that that Google described this transaction. I can't call it an acquisition because they won't right, but but I mean they, they they could have called it an acquisition of the business. They could have called it all you know, but they but I think they called it that because well I wonder how how much of their description was motivated by what had happened in the past, both at Google and at Microsoft. I mean, because those were a mess. And it's not clear, that doesn't necessarily mean this one will be, but it, it does make you wonder, okay, what lessons did you learn from it the first time through? And how are you avoiding those same mistakes this time? Um, you know, the Motorola acquisition had a lot to do with patents as well. Um, but it also sort of the rumors are flying that it was very much a knee-jerk sort of purchase um, done in response to all of the Apple Google lawsuits over well I guess all the Apple lawsuits over Android and and the patent violations related to that I don't know. I don't think this one necessarily will be a disaster I really don't um, it, it, and that's mostly because of where Google's headed with the Pixel. I mean, yeah. the, the truth of it is the Pixel is still not a mainstream device. Anybody can buy one, um, but uh, but Google hasn't marketed it in the kind of way to make it a mainstream device. You know, you're, you're not going to find people, average consumers that have Pixels. They're all tech enthusiasts. And uh, and I think there's a lot of room for Google to grow into the the sort of, you know, the flagship smartphone space with their own device. And I'll be really excited to see what they announce, um, not next week, but the week after. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, th this seems like, in, in light of the Pixel, this seems like a good idea, potentially. Um, if it wasn't for that, I'd be wondering what the heck they're doing again. Right. No, absolutely. I think, that's this, I think there are two huge differences between this and the Motorola deal. I think the biggest single one is where Google is today versus where they were then. I think back then... They had, you know, the Nexus program and various other things, but they really weren't making any of their own hardware. And suddenly they bought uh, an existing fairly sizable OEM in the Android space, basically ran it at arm's length as if it were any other OEM, which meant they got very little benefit from the fact that it was integrated. Uh, basically had it sort of create a bunch of stock Android devices, many of which targeted the low end of the market and uh, really didn't get much benefit out of it. And they spun off the part that wasn't about smartphones. They eventually... Uh, sold off the, the smartphone business itself to Lenovo, but you know that was uh, very much sort of a deal that kind of came out of nowhere and that didn't really seem to be very well thought out and certainly didn't fit into any existing strategy from first-party hardware. So it just felt sort of opportunistic and felt like they almost immediately decided it was a mistake or possibly in some people's theory that they never really wanted to hold the smartphone business for any length of time they wanted the patents and so stripped those out of it and then sold on the other pieces uh, this time around google's clearly very invested in first party hardware they have a dedicated hardware division internally they introduced a whole set of devices a year ago they're about to introduce the second generation of most of those devices and 
augmentations to them and so on, they're clearly committed to this space. And so they need help. They have this theory around building integrated devices that put together software and hardware that they tightly control. In reality, though, because HTC and LG have been doing the actual uh, design work, they're limited to basically working off uh, stuff that those companies have already built using platforms, using designs and so on that have been developed at those companies rather than starting completely from scratch, which limits the benefit of that integration. And so this very sort of surgical targeted acquisition of, of people and technology from HTC should allow them to go deeper in that optimization and that integration in a way that they can't do when it's running kind of at arm's length. And so I think the fact that it's going to be integrated, the fact that this is much, much smaller as an investment, that it's just people rather than a whole existing business that they have to manage, I mean, there's lots of benefits to that. I would argue in some ways that it might well have made sense for Google to buy all of HTC. I think the VR stuff would have been really interesting as sort of help uh, with their daydream efforts. I think, you know, just having the whole entity would have uh, given them manufacturing and other stuff that they don't get through this deal that they're doing here. But it's quite possible HTC simply wasn't ready to cave in entirely and give up on, on those two markets. But uh, certainly an interesting deal. I think this is much more likely to be successful. But it will, of course, take probably at least a couple of years to really see the effects. And even then, this doesn't get Google into, say, chips, which is a huge component of what's made Apple successful in that sort of tight vertical integration model uh, for the last few years now, as we've seen demonstrated again uh, the last couple of weeks with what they've done with uh, the A11 Bionic chip and the A8 uh, in the iPhone 8 and 10. Yeah, and I think that's what you just said is the reason why you can't acquire your way into a flagship smartphone um, uh, market, or you can't do you can't do it with any success anyway. And it's because this really is a complete product. I mean, even Samsung, for its part, even though it's using off-the-shelf chips, that they are primarily a manufacturer, and so there's a lot of stuff that they can leverage to be really good at smartphones. Um, and Google still has a ways to go before they can build all of that expertise in all the different related areas, because up to this point they just haven't had it. And I agree, this is a step in the right direction. I wonder, I do, you know, I do wonder if a if a complete HTC acquisition might be might be something that still happens down the road. I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't know what HTC is going to do next in in a in a substantial ways, and so. I mean, I agree the VR stuff is interesting, but that's still a very up-in-the-air market. So I don't know. Maybe maybe your advice will be heated someday in the future. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap things up there. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, we'll have probably a couple of links in the show notes to stuff that we've talked about. Aaron mentioned the Hodinkee uh, review of the Apple Watch, for example, earlier. Uh, so I think we'll probably link to that. We might link to a couple of other things too. But uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, that's the podcast for this week. Have a great weekend. Uh, enjoy your new Apple devices if you ordered any. Um, and uh, we'll be back with some new um, one or two episodes next week. Bye-bye.